You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Tuesday, September 14th, 2021. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ivy Winfrey. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, Coda explains updates in campus news, and I explained updates in a Loveland police death case. After that, Eliza Droder will update us on CSU Athletics, and then you'll be hearing Anton Schindler with his podcast, Painting the Corners. Then, Coda tells you about Tropical Storm Nicholas, and we hear from Dr. Mara Faw and Greg Dickinson about mental health and social support. After that, I'll be giving new information on COVID-19 and speaking to Natalie Weiland from the Collegian. To conclude the show, Koto explains some updates on technology, and I'll be telling you about the weirdest stories I've found recently. Let's move right into campus and local news. Hey everyone, this is Koto Babcock stepping in for Ellie Shannon with your weekly campus news. I hope that everyone has been enjoying their fourth week of classes in this 2021 fall semester. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 FM. Once again, Colorado State University made the list from U.S. News and World Report of the top 100 public universities in the country. At the beginning of 2021, CSU was ranked number 71, but it has now jumped to number 67. CSU was also ranked 86 in the top 100 universities for veterans. The dean of Warner College of Natural Resources, John Hayes, announced that he will retire at the end of the 2021 to 2022 academic year. Hayes used to be the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences Dean for Research and the Director of the Florida Agricultural Station. Hayes joined Warner College in 2014, and during his time, the college has seen significant growth. In his last year here, Hayes will help with difficult or with different projects before his retirement in the summer of 2022. CSU has its third highest had its third highest fundraising year ever, despite being amidst the coronavirus pandemic. Over 28,000 donors were able to raise over $178 million, with 7,000 of those to be first-time donors, according to Piper Russell of the Collegian. CSU also received a $2 million grant from the Anschutz Foundation, a donation to upgrade CSU's instrument rehearsal halls acoustics. $6 million to fund new service chairs in the Veterinary Teaching Hospital, and $1 million for the Center of Human Carnivore Coexistence. As always, make sure to tune into the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. Thanks for listening to your campus news. I'm Coda Babcock, stepping in for Ellie Shannon, and this is KCSU on 90.5 FM. Hello there, my name is Ivy Winfrey, and this is your local news for today on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. The Loveland District Attorney cleared the Loveland police officer who fatally shot a man in August of any criminal wrongdoing. According to Sadie Swanson at the Coloradoan, in a decision letter released Friday, 8th Judicial District Attorney Gordon McLaughlin said Loveland Police Patrol Officer Eddie Luzon was justified in shooting 19-year-old Alex Domina on August 16th and will not face any criminal charges. The decision came at the conclusion of a critical incident response team investigation led by Fort Collins Police Services. Domino was hospitalized after the shooting with life-threatening injuries and died at the hospital Tuesday. The Larimer County Coroner's Office had not released his cause and manner of death as of Sunday. Luzon was the first officer to respond to a disturbance call in the 1600 block of Tennessee Street. Domino's guardian called the police and said Domino was, quote, having a mental breakdown, breaking everything, and throwing stuff, end quote. She also told the dispatcher Domino had a knife. Luzon told investigators that when he arrived on scene, he stood at a safe distance, used a calm voice, and called Domino by his first name, a tactic he had learned, quote, in an attempt to better respond to someone in crisis, end quote. 
McLaughlin said, One minute and 13 seconds elapsed between Luzon's first contact with Domina and the shooting. And in that time, Luzon asked Domina to put the knife down three times and asked Domina to talk to him four times. When Domina started walking towards Luzon, Luzon told him to stop six times before shooting him. CERT investigators who investigated Domina's family also interviewed Domina's family, who said Domina, quote, experienced a sudden and unusual change in mood when they asked him to complete his chores. He destroyed items inside and outside the house, and they believe Domina could have potentially hurt them in this situation. A CERT investigation assesses potential criminal charges for anyone involved in the incident, and McLaughlin wrote, the investigation determined Domina could have faced multiple criminal charges. However, McLaughlin explained that because of Domina's mental health and quote, the, quote, significant cognitive difficulties Domina faced, it's unlikely he would have filed charges. McLaughlin wrote that, quote, while the law allows a district attorney to file charges if the elements of a crime are met, it does not demand it. I must also consider if doing so would be ethical and in the best interests of justice in the community, end quote. McLaughlin concluded his letter by writing, quote, It is my sincere hope that this tragedy will spark deep thought and reflection from the Loveland Police Department and Loveland City leaders regarding how best to perform to reform their current practices to better address calls for behavioral health crises, provide alternative means for emergency response, and strive to meet modern community expectations to reduce future harm and build trust with our fellow citizens, end quote. Larimer County's ICU reached 109% capacity Friday, making it the latest peak of a steady climb in COVID-19 hospitalizations that's out outpacing the previous surges experienced last winter. According to Aaron Udell at the Coloradoan, the county's previous peak ICU utilization rate was 97% on January 5th, according to the county's COVID-19 dashboard. That figure was eclipsed just two, over two weeks ago when the county reported an ICU utilization rate of 100% on August 26th. As of Friday, there were 84 COVID-19 patients in Larimer County hospitals, a number that has hovered in the 80s since August 31st. That number includes COVID-19 patients in the ICU, as well as the general hospital population. Colorado was down to just 197 ICU beds available across the whole state, according to a state COVID-19 update on Friday. The number of hospitalizations is also nearing a statewide record. The vast majority of northern Colorado's hospitalized COVID-19 patients, 83% at UC Health and 85% at Banner Health, were unvaccinated as of Friday, according to the health systems. The Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment reported 22 active COVID-19 outbreaks in Larimer County, the highest number of active outbreaks in the country in the county since June. According to Pat Ferrier and Molly Bohannon at the Coloradoan, COVID-19 case rates, positivity rates, and ICU utilization steadily increased in the county for weeks. The county's positivity rate was at 6.3% as of Monday morning both factors that have kept Larimer County at a high level of community transmission. As numbers have increased, local and state leaders have asked Coloradoans to once again wear masks indoors, though there's no mandate at the state or county level, and continue to get tested if any symptoms occur and get vaccinated with the goal of preventing spread. The majority of new outbreaks occurred in schools. Three schools in Thompson School District, Coyote Ridge Elementary School, Lucille Irwin Middle School, and Mountain View High School reported outbreaks last week, along with Lesher Middle School and Poudre School District. Coyote Ridge Elementary School was Thompson's largest outbreak, with 10 cases, nine of which were among students, according to state and county data. 
Following a rise in case numbers and outbreaks in Thompson School District, the district's Board of Education voted to extend its mask mandate from pre-K through 8th grade to 8th uh, grade to pre-K through 12th grade, as well as other district buildings. Poudre School District's Lesher Middle School also reported an outbreak last week with 12 cases, 10 of which were among students. Brookdale Fort Collins Assisted Living and Brookdale Mariana Butte in Loveland both reported outbreaks, with the Fort Collins facility having seven residents and two staff members test positive. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. That's all the local news I have for today, but stay tuned. She's just mad about me. They call me mellow yellow, quite rightly. Heyo, it's me, DJ Wireda Joe. My show, Sunday Disposition, is from 11 to 1 on Sundays. Tune in and tell me what makes your disposition sunny. My name is Eliza Drotar, and this is your RMR Sports Report. In women's soccer, the girls won 6-0 at home against Idaho State. Caitlin Abrams scored the first goal. Liv Layton scored the second. Gracie Armstrong scored two. And Christian Noonan scored three goals for a hat trick. The next match will be at home against San Diego State. In women's volleyball, the girls won their three-game homestand against SIUE, a shutout 3-0, and Oregon State going into five sets with a 3-2 set win, and UAB with a 3-1 win, only losing the first set. The next match is Thursday against CU in Boulder at 7 p.m. The next home match is Saturday against CU at Moby Arena at 1 p.m. In Rams football, the Rams lost to the Vanderbilt Commodores in the last 19 seconds of play losing 24-21. to 21. The Rams will be playing Saturday against Toledo at 2 p.m. in Ohio. In men's and women's cross country, the team plays first in Cheyenne for the Wyoming Open. The next meet is Friday for the Roadrunner Open in Denver at Washington Park. In women's swim and dive, they finish their first event, the Horsetooth Open Water. The Rams had some top finishers, including Hannah Skies and Kendra Preisky. If you want student tickets, you can go to csuram.evenue.net for tickets to see football, volleyball, soccer, and more.
My name is Eliza Drotar, and this has been your RMR Sports Report. from the Collegian at Rocky Mountain Student Media, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. You just heard from KCSU Sports about how athletics is preparing for the next week. Um, Now we're going to be listening to Anton Schindler's Painting the Corners, a podcast available at kcsufm.com and on Spotify by searching the podcast name. Now for Anton Schindler. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 24 of Painting the Corners with Anton Schindler, brought to you by 90.5 KCSU. In last week's episode, we talked all about the 2021 MLB season leading up to the month of September, including the current playoff picture, which hasn't changed too much, surprisingly enough. The only change that has happened so far is, well, I guess rather unsurprisingly, the San Francisco Giants, who have taken over the first place in the NL West by two games, and the Padres, who have taken the second wildcard spot in front of the Reds by a game. If the season were to end today after these changes, we would have the Dodgers and the Padres in the wildcard, and three NL West teams in the playoffs. You know, maybe it is time for some sort of shake-up in the divisions. (laughs) But anyway... In this week's episode, we're going to be talking more about the special events that come out of professional baseball, like the Olympics and the World Baseball Classic. The biggest difference between these two events all boils down to the rosters. You see, in the World Baseball Classic, MLB players are allowed to play and are encouraged to play as they aim to represent their home country. And that's a beautiful part about the World Baseball Classic. I mean, set up like the Olympics, a player plays with whichever home country they want to represent, so that the United States isn't always just the stacked team. That means that guys like Joey Votto can play for Team Canada, Javier Baez can play with Team Puerto Rico, and Sangwon Oh could play on Team Japan. The Olympics, on the other hand, only allow players who are not on the 40-man roster, so this includes pretty much a good number of AAA minor leaguers and the entire MLB roster. But this does in fact mean that retired players and prospects are able to play. That's why the U.S. men's Olympic team had a roster filled with a ton of minor leaguers from AAA and AA rosters throughout the United States, 
as well as a few legends like Todd Frazier and Edwin Jackson, who had their fair share of Major League experience. But we'll get to those guys later. Now, we're going to move on and talk about some of the history of these two events, starting with the World Baseball Classic. The World Baseball Classic is an international baseball tournament that started about 15 years ago, all the way back in 2006, so it's still, you know, relatively new. Since then, the tournament has been held five times in 2006, 2009, 2013, 2017, and this year, 2021. Now, the tournament is usually set to play every three years, but it was pushed back to year due to COVID. Now, there have been a few qualification games for the 2021 tournament, but the good majority of them have all been postponed due to COVID once more. So the actual tournament is likely to just be played in 2023, just wait another three years before they start to do it again. Not only that, but I mean, all of the qualification stuff will still have to finish up. And I think that they just decided that it wasn't really worth it. The World Baseball Classic originally started as Olympic Baseball and the Baseball World Cup, but these two tournaments were kind of discontinued after 2008 and 2013, respectively. MLB then decided that they wanted to continue to recognize the international baseball calendar, and thus the World Baseball Classic was continued. So far, the World Baseball Classic has been won twice by Japan, once by the Dominican Republic, and most recently by the United States. On their way to winning the inaugural World Baseball Classic, Japan edged out the undefeated South Korean national team in the semifinals, just before moving on to the championship game against Cuba. They ended up beating Cuba as well, 10-6, to become the actual quote-unquote world champions. 2009 followed a similar route as Japan forced their way to an impressive 7-2 record, losing twice just in the seeding rounds. Japan ended up beating the United States, who were 4-3 going into the semifinals, before going into a rematch with South Korea, who had once again steamrolled their way through the competition. The championship game ended in a 5-3 score, earning Japan their second title. By 2013, the Dominican Republic, and Puerto Rico for that matter, brought out the big guns. And I mean the big guns. Big names like Robinson Cano, Nelson Cruz and Edwin Encarnacion led the Dominican Republic to a perfect 8-0 record, not letting their competition score more than six runs in each pool leading up to the championship game. So, you know, the pitching was pretty good too. This team was so dominant that they had three more wins than anyone else, the next closest being Puerto Rico, who went 5-4, and four, just before losing three runs to none in this championship final against the Dominican Republic. 2017, on the other hand, showed dominant appearances by three different teams. The United States, who went 6-2, and two, Puerto Rico, who went 7-1, and one, and Japan, who went 6-1. and one. Japan, however, was defeated in the semifinal game by the United States during one of the honestly craziest games that you will ever watch with a final score of 2-1. to one. Now, I remember watching highlights of this game, and they still come up occasionally. And just witnessing the brilliant small ball that made Team USA so great that year is just, it's incredible. The first run 
of that game came from an Andrew McCutcheon single that scored Christian Yelich. Simple, easy as that. The second run, which came in the eighth inning, by the way, came from a fielder's choice that scored Brandon Crawford. No long balls, no extra base hits, just small ball. Other than that, however, there was a whole slew of United States pitchers who kept Japan pretty quiet, allowing one run on four hits while raking in six strikeouts. The United States then went on to play the, well then, undefeated Puerto Rico in the finals, which was a game that Marcus Stroman will not soon forget. Stroman pitched six unbelievable innings, striking out three and only allowing a single hit. The United States, on the other hand, scored two runs in the third, two runs in the fifth, three runs in the seventh, and another in the eighth, you know, just for good measure. The championship game finished with the United States winning 8 to nothing in 13 hits, giving Team Puerto Rico their one and only loss of the tournament. Now, many baseball fans and players alike really love the World Baseball Classic because of just the intense energy that it always brings. I mean, this is just a team of literal all-stars from all around the world meeting in one place to play their absolute hearts out to become literal champions of the world. The fans are so passionate and loud throughout the entire event. I mean, selling out games faster than you would ever believe. But what about the Olympics? You see, baseball has technically been in the Olympics for a really, really long time. It actually kind of surprised me when I was doing research for this episode. The first record of baseball in the Olympics dates all the way back to 1904 and the St. Louis Games, where it was shown off as a demonstration sport, meaning that it was more than likely added to the events in order to promote it and spread the word about it, rather than it be part of the standard medal competition. This was the same with the 1912 Olympics, where a single baseball game was played between the United States and Sweden. And... You know, no offense to Sweden, but I bet you can guess which team took the cake. The six-inning game ended in a 13-3 United States win over Sweden, after the United States scored four runs in the first inning, a run in the second, and then eight runs (laughs) in the fifth inning. The United States team was mostly composed of track and field athletes from America, while Sweden brought in the Visteris Baseball Club, the first ever baseball club in Sweden. Now, a kind of funny fact about this game is that, yes, the game lasted six innings. However, the United States only batted in five of the six innings. They actually ended up giving Sweden the entire six outs to end the game. So Sweden hit in the top of the sixth inning and the bottom of the sixth inning and still lost 13-3. to I mean, that's, I guess you could say that that's pretty cool on... The United States end. After the 1912 Olympics, however, baseball took a 24-year leave of absence before coming back onto the scene at the 1936 Summer Olympics in Berlin. This time, the game was played between the United States and a team called the World Champions, who was pretty much mostly composed of Americans as well. The World Champions ended up winning the seven-inning contest 6-5 as they walked off the game thanks to a solo home run off the bat of Les McNeese. The contest racked up a substantial crowd of 90,000 people, a record during the demonstration era of the game in the Olympics. Baseball again was thrown out of the Olympics before it was eventually brought back during the 1952 Olympics in Finland, 
that once again showed off a game between the Finnish Baseball League and the Workers' Athletic Federation. But you see, this game was a bit different. This game was called Pisaplo, and it's a Finnish variant of baseball that's a lot like baseball. The only real difference between this version of the game and baseball is that the pitch is thrown near vertically, which obviously makes it a lot easier to hit. Therefore, the offense goes a lot quicker, and it depends much more on tactics than anything else. This also then leaves the defense to pure anticipation and situational play accordingly. By 1956, however, as the Melbourne Olympic Games rolled around, the demonstration sport focused once again on traditional baseball, with a game between the United States and Australia. The field was placed on the Melbourne cricket grounds, meaning that the right field wall was only 225 feet from home plate. So in order for a ball to be deemed a home run, it would have to clear the wall as well as the running track next to the grounds. Otherwise, the hit would just be deemed a ground rule double so that players didn't have to go hurtling over the fences and potentially damage the running track with the baseball cleats. Either way, the United States still won the game, 11-5, after six completed innings. 1964 showed off baseball at the Olympic Games held in Tokyo, with the United States team chock full of young talent, a whole bunch of college baseball players, eight of whom found themselves in the major leagues soon after. Team USA beat a Japanese amateur all-star team 6-2 during the exhibition, thanks in part to a lead-off home run off the bat of Sean Fitzmaurice off of the first pitch of the game. The team was coached by Rob Daydow, one of the winningest coaches in the history of college baseball at USC. The sport then took another break and didn't make it into the Olympics again until 1984. However, from 1984, baseball made an appearance in the Olympics in seven straight games, ending in 2008 once the sport was removed by the International Olympic Committee by a vote. In that time, however, Team USA achieved gold twice, as well as a silver and a bronze. Japan only failed to miss the top three twice, along with Cuba, Chinese Taipei, South Korea, and Puerto Rico. Two more Olympic Games passed before baseball was readmitted back into the Olympics in 2020, or I guess technically 2021. But this year's Games showed off some pretty exciting baseball as well, with Japan meeting and eventually beating the United States in the gold medal game after beating South Korea and the Dominican Republic to get in. The Dominican Republic beat South Korea for the bronze, however, rounding out the medals for the 2020 or 2021 Olympics. Now, there's something about watching a game of baseball when it's not tied down by these professional leagues. I mean, this is really just a bunch of players from college levels, from minor league prospects, and even some retired major league players that have kind of become legends in their own right. And not to mention all of the international players from all the different teams all around the world. I mean, it's just all of these people, like I kind of mentioned earlier in this podcast, coming together to play the sport that they love really as well as they can. I mean, sure, you know, it doesn't really mean much in the end, but it still has to be really amazing to represent your country doing something that you love in either the Olympics or the World Baseball Classic. I mean, that and 
also seeing all of these passionate fans from around the world, I mean, it must just be one of the most fun experiences of all time. That was Anton Schindler with Painting the Corners, a podcast once again available at kcsufm.com. We're going on a quick break, but afterwards, we're going to be getting updates and national news. So stay tuned here on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to National News Highlights for Tuesday. Tropical Storm Nicholas brought devastating winds and flash flooding in Texas, Louisiana, and southwestern Alabama. According to Bill Chappelle and Barbara Campbell at National Public Radio, areas west of New Orleans and east of Corpus Christi were hit the hardest, especially in the region between Corpus Christi, Texas, and Houston. NPR says that a hurricane watch is in effect and that metropolitan areas are most threatened by flooding. Maximum sustained winds reached 70 miles per hour last night, with the storm moving northeast at 12 miles per hour, according to the National Hurricane Center. It's estimated to bring about 6 to 12 inches of rain in most areas in coastal Texas, with some isolated amounts of 18 inches. Southwestern Louisiana and other impacted states can expect 4 to 8 inches. Some schools have canceled classes in preparation for the storm, but students did attend as usual on Monday. Houston saw levels of water flooding highways Monday night, and flash flooding is expected to be a risk risk until Thursday or Friday. The following story discusses a pattern of police violence towards black Americans, but doesn't include graphic details. The story is about a minute or two long. Louisiana State Police Head Colonel Lamar Davis announced that he's open to federal oversight and wants to know why use of force in the state is directed at black people 67% of the time. According to a writing team at the Associated Press, Davis's comments came after the Associated Press investigated a particularly harmful pattern of Louisiana officers being protected from punishment after beating or killing black people. In an interview, Davis said, quote, I'm a black male. I don't want to feel like I'm going to be stopped and thrown across a car just because of that, and I don't want anyone else to feel that way, end quote. Davis continued that his position is challenging as both a black man and an officer, and he wants to find the best solution to the pattern of harm shown by the department, including outside intervention if needed. In his first 11 months as state police superintendent, Davis has focused on new policies related to use of excessive force and wants to continue the work of a previously secret panel that investigated police actions towards black motorists. Recently, an internal investigation on a case in which an officer killed a black man in 2019 resulted in no discipline for officers. Some politicians in the state are fighting for higher investigations into the department as a result. Four were injured this weekend after an apartment complex explosion near Atlanta. According to Ala Elessar and Deanna Heckney at CNN, the explosion destroyed multiple levels of the building in Dunwoody, Georgia at around 1.30 in the afternoon Sunday. The cause of the explosion is still unknown, but one resident claims that it smelled of gas the morning. Search and evacuation was carried out and completed by the DeKalb County Fire Rescue Department, confirming on Facebook Sunday night that no one remained trapped in the building following the explosion. Neighbors and individuals working or visiting the area acted at the scene, with Anton Williams, an employee at a nearby apartment's leasing office, said he shut down his office to see what was happening. A resident of a different apartment a few blocks up said that he heard the explosion and assumed a neighbor had dropped a heavy piece of furniture because of how loud it was. In a federal lawsuit, black employees of Pitt's Farm Partnership alleged that the farm hired migrant white employees at a higher wage for the same work. According to NBC and the Associated Press, six black farm workers in Mississippi say that South African white migrants were brought in and that the farm, work, and that the farm had violated federal law by paying those white immigrants more for the job. 
The lawsuit was filed last week by Mississippi Center for Justice alongside Southern Migrant Legal Services on behalf of the black farm workers. The farm grows cotton, corn, and soybeans. The law broken in this case would be due to regulations on worker visas requiring both American and migrant workers to be paid equally. Pitt's farm has not commented, but it is alleged that black employees were typically paid between $7 and $9 an hour, while white migrant employees were paid between $9 and $12 an hour. New York, New York City schools fully reopened after a year and a half of full or partial COVID-19 closure. According to Eliza Shapiro at New York Times, the city first reopened schools in fall 2020 for part-time in-person learning, but most students remained completely online. This year, remote option options are significantly less available, requiring most parents to enroll students back into classrooms. Some parents remain concerned that the Delta virus may close the schools quickly, but other parents and some students are excited for the social and emotional value they feel in-person classes offered. One parent claimed that she wasn't so nervous about the return after hearing about the safety protocols in the schools. New York City has one of the largest school districts in terms of population, and has caused and this has caused some issues as online screening sites crashed due to the amount of parents trying to log in at the same time. A few thousand students are still eligible for remote learning due to medical vulnerabilities. Some parents are also still waiting to send students back for a few days, uh, for, for a few days to a few weeks as a precaution. I'm Coda Babcock, and that's all for national news. You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. This is Speaking Well. I'm your host, Greg Dickinson. This is the podcast about communication and everyday life. In each episode, we talk with a communication expert and scholar and explore how communication research can provide resources for navigating complex interactions. We will talk about relationships and politics, social media and film, public speaking and private talk. In this podcast, we'll offer straightforward, but often challenging explorations about communication centrality to our lives. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Mira Fah. Dr. Fah is an assistant professor in communication studies at Colorado State University. She studies interpersonal communication and health. One of her specific areas of interest is social support. Considering the complexities of our lives right now, the coronavirus and COVID-19, economic fallout from the virus and the disease, racist violence by police and others, and the protests against this violence, we thought it could be useful to talk about social support with an expert. Dr. Fah, it's great to have you here with us today. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do at Colorado State University? Absolutely. So I'm an assistant professor here in the Communication Studies Department at CSU, and my area of expertise is in interpersonal communication and health. So what that means is that I spend my time researching, teaching, and connecting with students on how we build relationships and what it is about those relationships that affects our health and well-being overall. Great. That sounds so important, especially in the complex world we live in today. I'm supposing that social support is an important part of how we communicate with each other that supports our health. I know that I'm often looking for people to help me get through the day and, and feel a little better. So can you tell me a little bit about what what you mean about social support? Yeah, absolutely. And so when I uh, define social support or when I talk to students about what social support is, 
I usually define it in saying that social support is all of the things that we do for one another to come alongside one another and to sort of let each other know that we're cared for and that we belong in times of stress. And that can be in times of good stress or in times of bad stress. Mm. So we usually think about social support in terms of those times of bad stress. So you just lost a job and you need someone to let you know that things are gonna be okay. But we also need support in times of good stress. So you're planning a wedding and that's awesome and you're excited, but it's also very stressful. And so social support is all of those things that we do to try and connect with one another and let each other know that we're not alone and that we're sort of gonna walk with each other through these life experiences that we have. I really like that image of being beside somebody or walking alongside somebody. Can you tell me a little bit about what are the specific communicative behaviors that we do to demonstrate to somebody else that I'm beside you, I'm with you? Absolutely. And so when it comes to thinking about social support, uh, we can think about the verbal aspects of support as well as the nonverbal aspects. And so when it comes to the verbal aspects, there are certain words that we can use or there's language that we can use. And the research on this is pretty clear that when it comes to providing good verbal support, we need to focus on providing messages that are high in something called person-centeredness. And it's kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's putting the other person at the center of our attention, of our focus, and of our efforts to try and support them. And so we do that by legitimizing the other person's experience, letting them know that their feelings are valid and that it's okay that they're upset or it's okay that they're stressed. Mm -hmm. We acknowledge what they're going through and then we help them sort of contextualize that. So we help put that into perspective in the bigger, broader things of the world. And the more we can do that, sort of the better those supportive interactions tend to be. When it comes to the nonverbal aspects of support, there are all of these behaviors that are called nonverbal immediacy or nonverbal immediate behaviors. And so these include things like giving someone a hug. I mean, maybe in pre-COVID times, we did that a little bit more than we do now. Mm-hmm. But giving someone a hug or patting them on the back, even tangible actions like handing someone a Kleenex when they're crying, those are really supportive behaviors. And so there isn't any one rule on how we should non-verbally communicate support, but the general consensus is that our non-verbal behaviors matter and we wanna be using things like eye contact, uh, proximity as appropriate, so being closer to the other person, positioning our body towards them, and letting them know that we're really listening, and again, that they are sort of at the center of our attention, emphasizing that person-centeredness part of providing support. That's really great. I can, I can imagine um, having some of those behaviors come at me at, at times of stress and, and feeling better about, about how I'm gonna make it through the day, even, even if it doesn't um, resolve the problem. Can you, um, you, you said that, that the research is pretty clear on this. I, w- I would love to hear a little more like an example of a piece of research that shows kind of the connection between a behavior and feeling social support and maybe even if possible, a kind of a more a broader sense of well-being or health, yeah. healthiness. Yeah, well, I've actually done some of that research. So um, I'll tell you about an example from my own sort of research history. So I did a study a couple of years ago where I, um, you know, spent some time with uh, parents of severely disabled children and had them engage in a 10-minute supportive conversation with somebody that they considered a support partner. So it could have been their spouse. Um, For some, it was a friend or a parent or an adult child. And I had them have a 10-minute supportive conversation with each other. And before and after that conversation, I actually collected saliva samples from them to try and see how they were experiencing stress and what that conversation did to their stress levels. And using that idea of verbal person-centeredness, what we just talked about with verbal support, 
I found in my research that the people who received the most supportive messages, the messages where their support partners were really legitimizing their experience, mm. really helping them to explore their feelings, those people had significantly lower stress levels at the end of that 10-minute conversation. And that wasn't the same for people who received support that was not very good or even really bad support. Support where the other person was like, well, you shouldn't be upset about this or blaming them for their circumstance. Those people, as you can imagine, did not have reductions in their stress levels. And in fact, there's been other research sort of along with mine that has shown that that actually can make our stress levels worse. So that's just one example of how doing these things and doing them well in particular can really bolster the health and well-being of other people as well as for ourselves. So remarkable how our verbal communication intersects with how our body's actually functioning, the production of hormones and and, yeah. and other kinds of things. What what a what a great example. So um, I'm thinking about our current moment, COVID and um, racism and Black Lives Matter, the economic destruction that many of us have experienced either personally or work work close to. And I'm wondering if there are um, differences in the ways in which we show support that that are culturally based or that are that are responsive to particular concerns or even might have um, differences based on the modality we communicate with. Yeah. And so there's a lot that's happening right now. And the reality is, is for both. Let's just take the two sort of main contexts you mentioned, right, the COVID-19 context and then sort of racism and police brutality and Black Lives Matter. When we think about both of those contexts, those are really big issues. They're affecting virtually every aspect of our lives. And so the research on social support would say that, well, we probably need lots of different types of support to sort of help us deal with those challenges. Particularly with the COVID-19 pandemic, I think one of the things that's really resonating with us all and certainly resonated with us earlier in the pandemic was social distancing. And the fact that, you know, we couldn't hang out with our friends, our family, people we really cared about in the way that we could. And so in this moment of deep uncertainty, we found ourselves um, being maybe more socially isolated than we really ever have been in the past. And so the research on social support would say emotional support, actually making a connection with other people. And again, attending to that stress, attending to that uncertainty is really important. When it comes to the Black Lives Matters protest, I think one of the things that we're consistently hearing from activists and from those who are leading the charge is, um, yeah, they're upset, yeah, they're stressed, um, emotional support can be helpful, but what they really want from people is tangible support. They want action, right? They want people to be at protests. They want people to be donating to causes that support justice, you know, including things like bail funds for people who are arrested protesting. Um, And I think that's something we hear pretty consistently again from those social movement leaders who are saying, uh, we're done, you know, having our feelings attended to. Again, not that their feelings don't matter, they absolutely do they want to see action. And so I think those are just two small ways where we see these differences, right? At the same sort of moment in time, different types of support may feel more appropriate or may be more necessary for people. And again, I I do want to recognize those are both really complicated social issues. And it's likely that there are people who are, you know, participating in Black Lives Matter who still want, you know, emotional support, who still want um, esteem support, right? To be reminded that they're a valuable person. But I do think we're hearing and seeing some of these differences in sort of the way people are talking about these huge national issues and what the response should be from the broader public. I'm struck as you speak about 
how different, say, um, uh, joining the march is from saying, I, I see and, and feel your emotions. And yet, going back to the very beginning of our conversation, they're both ways of being beside somebody, yeah. of walking alongside somebody. And maybe that's, that's a key piece here. Uh, on that, I'm wondering if you could offer us, after uh, this conversation, one or two or three kind of key takeaways. If, if somebody could listen to this and say, okay, what, what's one or two things that I might be able to tweak or tune up in the ways in which I talk to people or the ways in which I listen to people? What, what would that takeaway be? What would that life hack be? So I think probably the biggest social support life hack is to remember that idea of person-centeredness and to center who the other person or the other people that you're trying to support are in your efforts to provide support. If you go into an interaction with other people assuming you know what they want Mm. or assuming you know what's best with them, there's just a greater probability that you will get something wrong. And it's not because you're a bad person or it's not because you're not trying hard, you are. It's just we need to pay attention to the other person. And so again, if you know somebody who's been personally affected, you know, by the things that are happening with Black Lives Matter, um, you know, don't listen to this podcast and say, well, Dr. Foss said I should give them tangible support. No, pay attention to who that person is and pay attention to their sort of individual needs. That's the real takeaway here is making sure that you are keeping the other person sort of front and center in your actions and behavior and in what you're doing. And I think the other part of that, too, is for our own supportive needs, right? So we've just been talking about, okay, how do you provide support? But of course, there's a big piece of this puzzle, which is, well, how do you get the support that you need? I think another thing that's really important for people to take away is it's okay to ask for help. And that can be asking for help in terms of, I just really need somebody to listen to me while I have a conversation. It can be help in terms of saying, I you know, need a ride to go to this protest because it's really important to me. And be aware that you know other people um, are often trying their best and they want to help, they want to support, particularly those people who know you and care about you. And in order to do that well, sometimes you just have to let them know what you need. Um, None of us are mind readers, so it would be great if we could do that. And so being vulnerable and being open and honest about your own needs is a really important thing you can do for yourself in terms of marshalling the support that you need. You know, the, 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 one of the last words you said there was one that I was thinking about near, near the end of this conversation, that notion of vulnerability, mm-hmm. being vulnerable to, to another to say, um, gosh, I, I want to hear from you what you really need, and I'll see if I can provide that, but then also being willing to, to share to share your own needs. Dr. Fraud, it's been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you for taking time out of your day. Yeah, thanks for having me. Speaking Well is a production of the Department of Communication Studies. Carol Bush is the producer and engineer. I'm your host, Greg Dickinson. Until next time, speak well.
The Poudre River Library District is a learning organization dedicated to providing open and equal access to intellectual freedom for the Larimer County community. At any of the three library locations, CSU students can use their RAM cards as library cards to stream movies and TV shows, access research databases, and check out books and equipment. Learn more at poudrelibraries.org or by visiting one of the three public library locations. I'm Coda Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Tuesday. Colorado State University reports over 3,500 cases since May 2020 among students, staff, and faculty of the university. Over 91% of students submitted either a vaccine card or an exemption to CSU, along with over 90% of employees. Over 85% of students attending on-campus classes are partially or fully vaccinated, and over 83% of employees have received at least one dose of an approved vaccine as well. Under 6% of students have exemptions for the vaccine, and around 7% of employees claimed an exemption. Larimer County and the CDC report high levels of community transmission for COVID-19. Larimer County recommends that in high transmission risk periods, residents take the following precautions. Get vaccinated as soon as possible if you are not already. Wear masks indoors and in crowded outdoor settings regardless of vaccination status. Be sure your mask has a snug fit and consider wearing a KN95 mask or surgical disposable mask. Disposable masks can be adjusted by tying knots in the ear loops. Postpone all gatherings if possible, and if the event must occur, consider requiring all attendees to be vaccinated or limiting the number of invited households. If the event is indoors, consider moving it outdoors. Get tested for COVID-19 if you have any symptoms or concerns of exposure. The county reports a case rate of over 277 per 100,000 residents in the county in the past week. 80 COVID-19 patients are currently in the hospital, and ICUs are full at over 100% capacity. There have been 34,000 cases of COVID-19 in the county, along with over 270 deaths. The state of Colorado reports over 640 cases of COVID-19 and over 7,500 deaths. Around 37,000 Coloradans receive hospital treatment for COVID-19, and over 3.3 million are fully immunized in the state. The state now offers gift cards to eligible unvaccinated people at certain sites if they choose to go get their vaccine. For more information, go to covid19.colorado.gov. The United States reports at least 40.9 million cases of COVID-19 and nearly 670,000 deaths. Sunday, cases increased by over 33,000 and deaths increased by over 200. In the past two weeks, cases decreased by 7%, but deaths increased by 25%. The United States is experiencing escalating or unchecked community spread in all states, but some U.S. territories are near containment. The Centers for Disease Control found that unvaccinated individuals are 11 times more likely to die of COVID-19 and its complications. The studies, which came out Friday, used data from 13 states between mid-April and mid-July of this year. The studies show that unvaccinated individuals were around five times more likely to contract COVID-19 and that unvaccinated individuals were still 11 times less likely to die from complications on the off chance that they did contract the virus. Unvaccinated people were also 10 times more likely to to require hospitalization, meaning that counties with a lack of hospital beds available could be helped significantly by more residents receiving vaccines for COVID-19. The study did show that the vaccine's protection went down from 91% in spring to about 78% in late summer. Breakthrough cases of COVID-19, or cases in vaccinated individuals, accounted for 14% of hospitalizations and 16% of deaths in June and July, but in April they accounted for half that percentage. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky said that 
unvaccinated individuals make up over 90% of those currently in the hospital for COVID-19. Information for t- from today's segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the Centers for Disease Control, the Associated Press, and National Public Radio's Coronavirus Tracker. That's all for COVID-19 updates. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review. Now, we're going to be speaking with Natalie Wyland from The Collegian. Today, I'm joined by Natalie Wyland of The Collegian to discuss her article on Durrell operations ceasing. So to start off with, when did Durrell operations fully cease? Housing and Dining sent out an email on September 2nd to um, dorm residents. Um, and I assume those who were on a meal plan, just notifying them that um, Durrell Center would be shifting from full operations to exclusively marketplace and express services. Basically, they're closing um, their all you care to eat. Um, services, which basically just means you can't go through, you know, the separate stations where they have each different kind of food, the dessert sections, things like that. However, you can still um, utilize their seating area to enjoy food that people pick up from, you know, Express or Marketplace. But that normal main dining center is going to be closed for the foreseeable future. What dorms are being impacted the most by this closure and where are they expected to go instead? So um, I don't necessarily have information on which specific dorms are being impacted, but from um, what Lucas Miller, who is the Senior Associate Director of Residential Dining Services, has told me, um, Braden has pretty low traffic around dinner time, so he encourages um, dorm hall residents to go there. Um, he also points out that they have an ice cream machine. Um, but the f- now that they've been able to transfer all of Durrell, some of Durrell's staff, to the Foundry. The Foundry is now able to expand their hours until 9 p.m. and Durrell Express is able to expand their menu. So while these other dining halls are going to have higher traffic, they now have staffing levels that can keep up with that and make sure that kids are still getting service. All right. And then why was Durrell specifically selected for closure rather than the Foundry, Brayden, or the dining hall near Academic Village? Yeah, so um, from what Lucas Miller explained to me, um, Durrell was seeing lower traffic than some of the other dining halls, specifically the Foundry. The Foundry is a pretty busy dining hall, and Durrell, just out of all the others, really wasn't seeing as many customers um, as some of the other dining options. So they made the decision to close that one because it would have the least amount of impact on um, residence hall students. All right. And then what options are really available with the current state of Durrell Dining Hall with um, Express and some of the seating options? Yeah. So students can still go through Express, order things on Grubhub through Marketplace. um, And um, again, they're still able to utilize that seating area to enjoy food that they get from either Express or Marketplace. They just cannot go through those separate stations to get full meals anymore at Durrell Center. All right. And then can you explain a bit about the worker shortage and its impact on CSU and kind of the restaurant and dining community as a whole? Yeah. So housing and dining services explained to me that they started seeing a lack of applications um, this summer when they were trying to staff up their dining halls. Um, And this is kind of in line with national trends. I mean, we're seeing in the news all the time things about especially the restaurant industry having um, labor shortages. Um, Just last weekend, I was home in Colorado Springs and I saw a restaurant sign on the road offering money for people just to come in and get an interview. Like it's really affecting a lot of other places in this industry and it's attributed to it's it's 
mainly because of the pandemic, they're really hurting. So CSU is not immune to this. Again, that was Natalie Weiland from The Collegian. And if you want to read her story, it is up on collegian.com. We'll be right back. Kerry King from Slayer, you're listening to KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to Tech News on the Rocky Mountain Review. With a new software update, Apple fixed a security issue that allowed hackers to target iPhone users. According to Frank Bajak at the, the Associated Press, the issue in the software allowed for groups to hack into iOS devices without any action from the device's user. The vulnerability impacted iPhones, MacBooks, Apple Watches, and more. The vulnerability was was identified by the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab, a group who previously identified similar hacking in phones of journalists and other targeted groups. The perpetrator is believed to be NSO Group, a spyware organization based in Israel. Apple users can go to Settings, then go to the General tab to download the newest software update, which solves the risk of the security breach on your device. Some U.S. senators are asking for the federal government to investigate tech giant Amazon's treatment of its, pre- of its pregnant warehouse workers. According to Alina Saluch at National Public Radio, six senators sent a letter saying that the U.S. Equal Op- Employment Opportunity Commission needs to investigate how Amazon denies accommodations to pregnant employees working in warehouses. Former Democratic presidential primary candidates Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren co-signed the letter written by Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Multiple lawsuits were cited in the letter, pointing to instances in which Amazon was accused of denying reassignment requests or requests for less intensive duties by pregnant women. Pregnant women and people with disabilities are entitled to certain protections related to reasonable accommodations under U.S. law, which is what the senators are focusing on in urging this investigation. In response to the letter, Kelly Nantal, an Amazon spokesperson, said that the company disputed the allegations. Credit rating site Moody's spent $250 million to survey hacking risks for large U.S. companies. According to Sean Lingas at CNN Business, Moody's credit ratings influence global markets and and have come after several high-profile attacks that have been making headlines across the country. The money is being invested into BitSight, which uses algorithms to predict how likely a business is to be hacked into. This makes Moody's the largest minority shareholder in the company, and as a result, BitSight will be able to acquire and use a risk ranking system from Moody and a global security company called Team 8. Both private companies and U.S. government agencies have struggled with ransomware attacks and other security breaches, and this helps to get solutions for larger organizations as they work to continue avoiding breaches. That's all for tech news. I'm Coda Babcock, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 FM. Now for weird news. Hello there. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and you're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. Sometimes things need to get a little bit weird, so here's a few of the weirdest stories I've found. 
The Ig Nobel Prizes for 2021 have been awarded, commemorating the weirdest and funniest scientific discoveries of the past year. According to Kate Medelna at ABC News Science, the Ig Nobel Prizes celebrate science that is weird and amusing, and are organized by U.S. publication The Annals of Improbable Research. Ten prizes are given annually for legitimate research in areas like psychology, acoustics, economics, and physics. This year's winners were awarded a $10 trillion bill from Zimbabwe and a PDF document that can be printed and assembled to make three-dimensional gear with teeth. The gear teeth are pictures of human teeth. The Ig Nobel Peace Prize was given to a trio of scientists in America who found that human beards may have evolved to protect vulnerable regions of the facial skeleton from damaging strikes that occurred between males in fights. The Ig Nobel Economics Prize was awarded to Pavlo Botlavsky, a professor of the Montefiler School of Business in France, who discovered that the obesity of a country's politicians may be a good indicator of that country's corruption. The Ig Nobel Prize for Transportation was awarded to a team of scientists from Nambia, South Africa, Tanzania, Zimbabwe, Brazil, the UK, and the US for an experiment that determined it's safer to transport an airborne rhinoceros upside down rather than right side up. To read all about the research done for the Ig Nobel Prizes and to see the other award winners, you can visit improbable.com. Anti-vaccine protesters failed to cause massive traffic in London after attempting to press every single pedestrian crossing button in the city. According to Lucy Williamson at My London News, the protesters gathered in London last week in what the organizing Facebook posts says was against, quote, tyranny, genocide, vaccine passports, and injecting children, end quote. The group encouraged anti-vaxxers to create gridlock traffic between 7 a.m. and 10 a.m. on September 6th. A Facebook post read, quote, We aim to bring London to a total standstill and remind this government that nothing moves or happens in this country unless the people agree to it. If we all commit to this project, London will be gridlocked, and if it needs be, we will do it every day, nationwide, until they remember their place, end quote. However, their plan seems to have not gone as planned, with a major contributing factor to the failure being that most pedestrian crossings in London are automated, meaning the buttons have no impact on when traffic stops. It is only at night that the traffic light button is active, Transport for London told the BBC. It's unclear how many people took part. However, the Facebook organizing group has 3,600 members and traffic in London was unaffected September 6th. Scientists are potty training cows in an attempt to reduce their impact on climate change. According to Isabel Janney Friend at CNN, it was usually assumed in the field of biology that cattle could not control their ability to defecate and urinate. Now scientists at the Research Institute for Farm Animal Biology in Germany are relying on research that suggests that animals such as cows are much more intelligent than they seem. Farmed cattle produce roughly 66 to 88 pounds of feces and 8 gallons of urine each day, with most of this waste being left whenever the cow, wherever the cows happen to be. However, their spread of their waste into the soil can have negative effects on the environment. Agriculture is the largest source of global ammonia emissions, and livestock farming makes up more than half of that contribution. The researchers noted in a press release, adding that Europe, 90, that in Europe, 90% of ammonia emissions come from agriculture. While the ammonia produced from cow waste doesn't directly contribute to climate change, when mixed with soil, it is converted into nitrous oxide, a greenhouse gas. It also contaminates the soil and local waterways.
The potty training of the calves began with researchers placing the cows into a latrine and rewarding them with food whenever they urinated inside the latrine and gently splashing them with water whenever they urinated anywhere else besides the latrine. The calves were trained for 45 minutes every other day, and after 10 training days, the team had managed to successfully train 11 out of the 16 calves involved in the experiment. The results showed that calves performed at a similar, similar level to children when learning to potty train and did better than very young children. Jan Lagbang, co-author of the study, says that the study showed that it is possible to potty train calves and that it is his hope that, quote, in a few years, all cows will go to the toilet, end quote. My name is Ivy Winfrey, and that's all I have for the weirdest stories of today. And now for the weather. Today, temperatures stuck around as pretty cool with a high of 80 and a low of 51, with mostly sunny skies and moderate wind speeds. Wednesday, skies will be sunny with a high of 89 and a low of 52, with slower wind speeds and no chance of rain. Thursday will warm up to a high of 90 with a low of 53, and clouds will start to return with moderate winds. And for Friday, you'll have to tune in this Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the Rocky Mountain Review, only on 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Coda Babcock, and information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, Stephanie Keel, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Addison Lambert, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Lindsay Johnson, Eliza Droder, Maddie Erskine, Samuel Bailey, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwab, Mary Tanksley, Melissa Ronaldo, Dixon Lawson, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Ivy. And finally, we couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. And with that, we'll see you next time.